0: Sunday morning, suddenly some kind of a, a summertime flu bug, and then by the end of the day on Sunday, uh, I felt uh, back to normal. So it's very, very strange, and I missed being here uh, with you. Uh, and so it's good to good to be back, and uh, good to be uh, finishing up the book of Philemon uh, today, and just uh, just a privilege to be uh, with the Lord's people uh, this morning. And in, uh, in in recent months and years, there has been a, a resurgence. In our culture, uh, of the concept of accountability. Uh, and if you if you were to do a, a google search on the the word accountability you'd see a little uh graph that would display the usage of that word over time uh and as you look at that graph you see a sharp increase uh between 1950 and 2010 of, of uh, our nation is beginning to see the importance of personal accountability of taking responsibility for uh the choices that we make and yet even though we, we talk a lot about accountability, we still apply this inconsistently. Uh, that Sometimes we like to, to place responsibility upon individuals, uh, and other times we place responsibility upon uh, people groups uh, or institutions or political parties. Uh, but uh, true accountability always comes down to a person, an individual, making a decision and owning their decision and all of the results uh, of the choices that they make. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines accountability as uh, the quality or state of being accountable, especially uh, an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility uh, or to account for one's actions. And uh, Merriam-Webster's, uh, they usually do an example in their definition. And the example that they use uh, in a sentence of accountability, they say uh, that public officials lacking Accountability. Uh, and that's the, the, the typical, uh, uh the, the typical, uh, example that we would think of of who, who needs to be accountable. The public always is crying out for, uh, for public officials, politicians, uh, and now police officers to be accountable for, uh, the decisions that they make while they are in office or holding their position of authority. And influence in, and, uh, and as our culture gives loud amens to accountability as Christians, we need to agree with them. Uh, personal accountability is something that is is taught and seen throughout uh, Scripture. Uh, and uh, if you if you turn with me to to Ezekiel eighteen, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna end up in Philemon this morning, but but turn first to Ezekiel eighteen, where we see this concept of of personal accountability. Uh, taught clearly and profoundly in in Scripture. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, Ezekiel 18, uh, let's read verses 1 through 4. As the word of the Lord came to me, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine; the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so, what was what was happening in Israel at this point in time is that there was this proverb that was being stated. It's kind of a, I guess, a funny proverb to our ears uh, in the 21st century America. But th- what what they were saying was that uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and children's teeth are set on edge the idea of the the fathers are the ones who ate the sour fruit uh, but uh, the children are the ones who are tasting the bitterness of that fruit in essence what the the nation of Israel is saying is that they were being punished for the sins of a previous generation that hey what's happening right now they're saying hey it's not our fault but it's our forefathers fault and we're being punished for them uh, and so God sends the prophet Ezekiel and says, "Hey, wait a second no that's that's not the case because every single generation is judged for their own sin uh, as we we won 't read the entire chapter, but what what uh the prophet lays out here under the inspiration of scripture is that hey if if a man is righteous, he will live, but if that righteous man has a has a son who who disobeys and wanders into sin and falls away from the Lord, that person will be judged." Uh, but then if that unrighteous man has uh, has a son and that person uh, follows the Lord, he won't be judged for the sins of his father, uh, and nor the father will be judged for the sins of the son. Then jump with me to verse 20. This is, this is where personal accountability is again emphasized. Ezekiel writes, that the soul who sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is right, uh, does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel." Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, "'The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? It is not your ways. Is it not that your ways are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways,' declares the Lord God. "'Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin.'" Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That was a a lengthy passage and it was uh, somewhat repetitive, right? But the emphasis is upon each individual person being judged for... Their actions, for their deeds. Every single person is accountable to God. He is the final authority that we are, that we must give an answer to. And, and it's this concept of, of personal accountability is what gives power and emphasis to our appeals to other people. Uh, And as Christians, we are called to, to make those appeals. And, and sometimes when we make those appeals, we can, we can fret, we can worry. How is this person going to respond? But this understanding of God's sovereignty and personal accountability can can help us to sleep at night because we do what we are responsible for in making the appeal, and then we leave the results up to that person and up to the Lord. Uh, and as we as we finish up our our study of of Philemon uh, this morning, you can you can turn with me over there. We we have been seeing how how the Apostle Paul made an appeal to a brother in Christ. He's he's appealing to Philemon, uh, begging him, pleading with him to receive back his runaway slave, Onesimus. Uh, and as we've been studying this, we, we see that we, we are called to, to make an appeal to people at times. And in and, and making that appeal, we, we come alongside them and, and we point them to Christ and we urge them to consider their ways and to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. And that is what was, was highlighted in that Ezekiel passage. That is what we are called to do. Uh, this is the, the message of the gospel, that we are always, uh, all people everywhere, called to turn from sin and turn in trust to Jesus Christ. And as we've studied Philema, we've learned how to make a, a God honoring appeal, uh, and, and how to do that, how to go about it. But then, what happens after we make that appeal to somebody? What happens after we come alongside them and we, we graciously and lovingly say, hey, I'm concerned for you. Or I think you need to respond to God in this way. And this is something I see in your life. But, but then what happens after we come alongside them and say that? After we make our appeal, then what that's the question that I'd like to to answer this morning and that is what we are going to see here at the end of this short letter to Philemon uh, and what's amazing is that in the in the lord's sovereignty uh, he he inspired this letter and that he preserved this letter this small personal letter from the apostle paul to this church leader in this really small town in the middle of what is modern day turkey that That God said, hey, you know what? My people for all time are going to need this letter. That's going to be applicable to them. And there's going to be things that they need to learn from it. And he has preserved it. And in this letter, we we see the gospel on display. Uh, And there's three main characters in this letter. Paul, the apostle who's in prison in Rome. We see Philemon, uh, a, a leader in the church in Colossae. And the church meets in his house and then we have Onesimus, a slave who ran away from his master Philemon. He, he went to Rome, and there he met the apostle Paul. He, be, he heard the gospel, believed the gospel, placed his faith in Christ, and now he is being sent back with this letter by Paul to reconcile with his master. And now they are brothers in Christ. And this letter would have been read aloud to the entire church. They would have gathered together in Philemon's house, and it would have been read publicly. So it's a personal letter, but it's not a private letter. And in this letter, Paul lays aside his authority as an apostle, and he approaches Philemon as a friend, and he's going to make his appeal. If you look with me at verse, uh, verse 8, uh, it's really the, the beginning of the main body of, of the letter, where Paul makes his appeal. And he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." That's that's the the main body of the letter, and then he concludes that main body in the verses that you looked at last week, verses 17 through 20, where Paul's going to issue three commands. He's he's just made his appeal in that portion we just read, and then verses 17 through 20, he he begins to issue some instructions or make some some inspired requests. Verse 17, he says so. If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, and he issues these these three requests. Number one, to to receive Philemon back, the idea of forgiving him, bringing him back into his home, receive him. And then that second command, he says, Hey, whatever he owed to you, because Philemon stole and then ran away from his master, whatever he owes to you, he says, charge that to me, I'll repay it. And oh, you know, as we're on the topic of debts, Philemon, how much do you owe me? <laughs> you owe me your, yourself. And then that last request that he makes, he says, Refresh my heart in Christ. Earlier in the letter, Paul had said that that Philemon is known as somebody who had refreshed the hearts of the saints. And he says, hey, what you've been doing to others, now do for me. Refresh my heart in Christ. And after issuing those three commands, now Paul concludes the letter in these final verses that we're going to look at today. Verses 21 to 25. He says, Confident of your obedience... I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, and I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And in these last verses of the letter, and Paul is bringing his correspondence to a close, but at the same time, he's also still gently pressuring Philemon, still encouraging him to forgive Onesimus. And he's finished his appeal, but now he's concluding the conversation. And he's he's bringing Philemon to the point of decision and then saying, all right, now you need to decide. Even even though he's he's encouraging and gently pressuring, he is not coercing. And the whole letter has built... To this point, and as we look at these final words, we're, we're going to see that what should always follow an appeal is accountability. That we should take note of what is said and how it is said, so that we might be able to encourage others to faithfulness. That we might appeal to them and say, all right, you need to make the decision, and then I'm going to circle back around and find out what you did. And I'm going to encourage you to continue to encourage you to pursue Christ, And what we're going to see this morning in these verses are four principles that we need to apply after we've made an appeal to a fellow Christian. These principles will help us to to walk down uh, a path that will bring encouragement to everybody involved and it will bring glory to Christ. But before we begin, I I need to make some qualifications of just about these principles and then about this letter as a whole. So we, we have to understand the context. This letter was written by Paul to mediate conflict between two Christians, between two believers. So, uh, all of these principles are going to be helpful when trying to resolve conflict between believers, right? Uh, and then. There are going to be other principles that are only helpful, uh, in some instances when we're trying to resolve conflict between an unbeliever and a believer, or between two unbelievers, we can't necessarily apply all of these principles. For instance, when, when trying to resolve conflict with non-Christians, you can't, or I'm sorry, there will be some principles that, that will be helpful. So such as appealing in love rather than in authority. Or, uh, not coercing somebody, but, uh, appealing to them and, and desiring their consent rather than forcing them into something. Those, those are principles that are applicable, uh, in every situation where there is conflict, uh, to, with believers and unbelievers. But, but with, in other times, there's gonna be principles from this letter that aren't gonna be applicable. You can't call an unbeliever to understand their fellowship in Christ right it, it, it's not going to be a motive for an unbeliever to resolve conflict uh, and you can't encourage an unbeliever to uh, to forgive as they have been forgiven in Christ and that's, that's going to fall short. So we need to, to exercise wisdom in, in utilizing these uh, principles. The, this is first and foremost intended to be how do we resolve conflict, how do we make appeals, and then how do we provide accountability with other Christians, with others who have called upon the name of Christ in faith. Uh, so, I just needed to make those qualifications and understand that not all of these principles are going to be applicable in every situation. But let's look at these four, these four principles that we need to apply after making an appeal. Principle number one, we see in verse 21, that we need to communicate our trust in others. That we need to communicate trust in others, and that is exactly what Paul does. After making his appeal, he says, Con- confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, now Paul and Philemon had a long-standing relationship that there was a great deal of trust that had been built up between these two men. And that's what enables Paul to say this. That, hey, I'm writing to you confident that you're going to do the right thing. That you're going to be obedient uh, in what I'm asking you to do, uh, and in this verse, there, there's there's one main verb. The, the main idea is that Paul is writing, and then there's two kind of supporting ideas that explain how and why he's writing. So he's writing because he's confident, and because he knows that that Philemon is going to do even more than what is being asked. And that that idea of that he is confident is the idea is that he is absolutely 100% fully convinced that Philemon is going to do what he's asking. Uh, and that idea of of obedience or of compliance, is uh, that word initially is used to describe somebody uh, who hears a knock at the door and then goes over to the door to hear uh, who's on the other side. They come and answer. And the, it's the idea of, of listening to the voice of another and then responding to it with obedience. And Paul doesn't use this word often when he says, hey, I'm confident in your obedience. He doesn't usually... Say that word. So when he says it, he, he, it's significant. And the idea of obedience there is, is complete gospel obedience. It's, it's pointing to the obligations that accompany the message of the gospel. And that message of the gospel is that we have, uh, been forgiven. All people are sinners and all who look to Christ in faith will be forgiven by God. That they will be made righteous, uh, reconciled to the holy God that they have rebelled against. That's the message of the gospel. And there is no greater gospel obligation than for those who are forgiven by God to then extend forgiveness to others. Pastor John Kitchen says that grace received demands that grace be extended. If we have received the grace of God, we need to be willing to pass that grace along to others. Because grace is what? Something that we didn't deserve. It was freely given to us, and we need to freely pass it along. Paul emphasizes that he is confident that Philemon will obey, and then he says, "I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say." And in this, Paul, the reason that Paul is writing, he says, "Hey, I, you're going to go even beyond what I'm asking, but right? I know that for certain." But that's kind of an ambiguous term, right? What is it? What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean that, that, Philemon, I expect you to do even more? I expect you to do what I've asked, and then I expect that you will go even above and beyond what I, what I have said to you. What does that mean? What is this even more that Paul is asking? Well, there's a couple of different options. It could be that Paul is just pointing to Philemon's reception of Onesimus. He says, hey, I want you to give him a grand reception. When you receive him back, uh, do it with, with great generosity. Or it could point to a complete reinstatement of Onesimus as a member of Philemon's household. It says, hey, welcome him back in uh, as, a, as a slave, as a brother. Reinstate him completely. completely. Treat him as if he never left, and now he is a believer in Christ. It could also point, possibly, to Philemon setting Onesimus free. To say, hey, here's what I want you to do, and then I expect you to go even beyond it. Now it's not explicitly stated, it's kind of some 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 guessing on our part, but that could be an implication that paul is is wanting Philemon to gather from this. or it could be some combination of all three of these, as they're not mutually exclusive. And throughout this letter, the the pressure has been mounting on on Philemon. Paul is such a gracious and loving guy, but man, can he exert some pressure uh, when he wants to? Throughout this letter, he's he's just subtly kind of put his hand upon Philemon and and just graciously and continually appealed to him. To you, Paul Paul appealed uh, to his position as Philemon's brother, verses seven and verse twenty. He says, "Hey, brother, well, let me come alongside you." His appeal is based upon uh, his position as Philemon's brother and as Philemon's spiritual father. In verse nineteen, he says, "Hey, by the way, I was the one who who shared the gospel with you. You owe me." Yourself. Additionally, he appeals to Philemon's reputation. Verses 5, 7, and 9, he says, Hey, you are known for being a man who is loving and kind to all of the saints. And he appeals to Philemon's heart as he repeatedly mentions his own infirmities and his own imprisonment. Verse 1, he says, Hey, I'm a a prisoner. Uh, Verse 9, he says, I, Paul, an old man, and now, a prisoner also for christ jesus he he 's reminding Philemon of his own uh situation, and then additionally, he lays aside his his apostolic authority and appeals uh, to Philemon as a friend as, as an equal as a peer and then, in verse fourteen he says hey I, he he says, "I want to make sure that this is your decision that this is your choice i don 't want to compel you i don 't want to force you." I want you to want to do this. He says, I want your goodness to be by your own choice, by your own free will, rather than something that I am forcing. And all of this adds up to to create a, a great deal of loving pressure upon Philemon. He has made a great request, but that request is still kind of ambiguous. It's not clear. At the end of the letter, you're still kind of like, so what is he asking him to do? Well, I think that's intentional. I think it's kind of murky because Paul has taken Philemon up to the edge of this decision and says, all right, now you need to decide. What are you going to do? Here's all of the implications. You you loving and kind man who has refreshed the hearts of all of the, the saints around you. Now you need to make a decision on what you're going to do regarding this slave who has sinned against you, run away, stolen from you. What are you going to do? but Paul wants Philemon to make the choice his his hope uh, i think is ultimately that that Philemon would release Onesimus it's not clearly expressed it's my own hunch but i but i think that that is what Paul wants and how, why, why do i think that partly because of what is stated in verses 15 and 16 that Paul says hey you've you've gained back uh, your slave but he's no longer a slave more than a slave He's now a brother in Christ, as we've seen. He, hey, your relationship with Onesimus is now not based upon your earthly social status of, of slave and master, but your relationship is now based upon your spiritual relationship as brothers in Jesus. That is what he is calling him to do. And, uh, and so Paul leads him up to the edge and says, all right, now you need to figure out how love applies in this circumstance. And he says, Philemon, I trust that you're going to make the right decision." Just to add to that pressure. I'm confident that you're going to do the right thing. And, and trust is something that we have to be willing to extend in our relationships. Especially with other believers. That we are to to trust them that the Spirit of God will work in them and through them and lead them to the right decision. We, we shouldn't manipulate and try and force them into doing what we want them to do. Even though that's our fleshly temptation, right? I know what I want them to do, and let me just manipulate and control this situation to get them to do what I, what I want them to do. When we communicate our trust in other believers, we're also communicating our trust in the Spirit of God and in the Word of God. John fourteen fifteen says that Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, in 1 John 5, 3, John writes, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We need to, to trust God's word that if somebody is genuinely saved, the Spirit's going to lead them to make the right decision. That the Spirit's going to, to guide them, to empower them to pursue God. And, and so we don't need to jump in and try and control something. We need to appeal to them and let the Spirit work. Uh, that way, uh, we are, we're not acting like uh, wicked kings and, and despots. Uh, we're not acting like somebody who's trying to take control of the situation but we 're acting like servants uh, as disciples of Christ Paul, Paul Tripp uh, says uh, this is acting like a mini messiah. Now when we try to control something that 's in the hands of somebody else or in the hands of God that we 're trying to be christ we 're trying to be Lord, we're trying to be the Messiah. Mini messiahs is what we are trying to be. Another individual G. k. Chesterton, I love this quote. He says it is when men begin to grow desperate in their love for people, when they are overwhelmed with the difficulties and blunders of humanity, that they fall back upon a wild desire to manage everything themselves. Their faith in themselves is only a disillusionment with mankind. They are in that most dreadful position, dreadful alike in personal and public affairs. The position of the man who has lost faith and not lost love. This belief that all would go right if we could only get the strings into our own hands is a fallacy almost without exception. But nobody can justly say it is not public-spirited, meaning that it's a, a love for others. It says the sin and sorrow of despotism is not that it does not love men, but that it loves them too much and trusts them too little. Right, and what, what he hits on there is, is a remarkable truth. That the people that we love the most are the ones that we are most tempted to try and step in and orchestrate, right? No, we, we want to go in and control those people that we love the most, especially when they're making a decision that that we we know where it's going to lead. Well, we we see them making a poor decision, and what do we want to step in and do? We want to step in and become puppet master. Oh no, don't do that. Let me let me guide you over here. Uh, and ultimately, it is. Even though it's a, a good motive, a motive of love, it is an idolatrous motive. Because ultimately we are not worshiping God, we're worshiping uh, this person. Or we're worshiping control in our lives. I want to be control. Uh, you know, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life and let me control uh, where your life is going to go. Now that is the temptation that we face all the time. And, and in this letter, Paul goes out of his way to communicate that that is not what he wants to do with Philemon he says Philemon I want you to exercise your freedom I want you. I, I trust you to make the right decision uh, and this is what I'm encouraging you to do and when we make an appeal to others that's what we need to do we need to point them to the truth of scripture and we need to call them to act for the glory of God and then we need to remove ourselves from the picture say hey I trust that the Lord will lead you in what you need to do And when we do that, when we remove ourselves, who is that person left standing before? God. When we remove ourselves and we say, hey, I'm not going to control and manipulate this situation, but I'm going to point you to God and then I'm going to step back and say, you need to decide what you're going to do. It's almost like that's much, much scarier for that person. Uh, And it brings that individual before a holy God, understanding that they need to act uh, before him, not just to make you happy. Which is oftentimes what can happen when we become puppet master. And it makes them make a decision for the right reasons rather than just because of our persuasion. Now, and this is ultimately how we are, how we're sanctified. Hearts are transformed when we begin to to make choices uh, to pursue righteousness rather than sin. To pursue the Savior rather than sin. That is what we are called to do. And by the grace of God, that is how everybody who is in Christ will begin to live. Now, do we do that perfectly? Everybody says, you can give a hearty amen. No, we don't do that perfectly. Uh, But we can trust that over time, God will lead us in the way that we need to go. That that is the, the, the first principle that we need to apply after making an appeal, that we need to communicate trust in them and then leave it to the Lord. The second principle is that we need to provide accountability for them. And this is seen in verse 22. Paul says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So what what he then moves on to say, hey, Philemon, I trust you, but I want to come check on you. Uh, He says, at at the same time, indicating, hey, at the same time that you are uh, receiving Onesimus back into your home, that you're reinstating him and possibly freeing him, get get a room ready for me. Make a guest room ready. Keep it always ready for me. Keep it in a state of readiness because I I trust you, but I'm going to come and verify that my trust is rightly placed. Uh, that that he uh, he promises that he will come to visit not uh, not explaining when not ex- but he does explain how. He says that his hope is that he would be that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Uh that that Paul assumes that the entire church in Colossae is praying for his release and for an early visit uh there to the, the town of Colossae and and he uses a, a word there when he says graciously given. That through your prayers, I will be graciously given. Uh, the idea that, that God is the one who will give Paul to the Colossians. Uh, that God is the one who will act because Paul is the one being given. Uh, and that word graciously given, uh, it's actually the same word that is often translated as Forgiven it's the idea of giving freely in fact the, the word appears 3 times in colossians which was also read uh to uh this church 3 times once in colossians 2 verse 13 uh and then twice in colossians 3:13 uh, that where paul is saying that they need to forgive others as they have been forgiven in christ so this is almost like one more subtle way uh, of Paul reminding Philemon, hey, this is what you need to do. What do you need to do? You need to forgive Onesimus in the same way that you're praying for me to be graciously given, that, that God's gift to the Colossian church would be a, a free Paul. He says, hey, you, you need to forgive. You need to uh, understand that the, the grace that is given and be praying to that end and be extending that grace to Onesimus at the same time. All right. And then he also makes a a subtle shift uh, from addressing Philemon to addressing the entire church. He says, hey, I I trust that you are all praying for me uh, and that I will be delivered by the prayers of you all. Uh, And the entire church, uh, again, think about this. All of this is being read in front of everybody in the church. How would you feel if there was conflict between two of you and I got up and read a letter to resolve conflict between two of you in front of everybody? You can, again, the eyes would be wide. You could feel the tension in the room. This is what is taking place. Uh, and Paul saying, hey, I'm confident that you're going to do the right thing. And then I'm going to come check on you. All of this would have played out in front of the entire church. Uh, and Paul is adding to all of the, the additional accountability from the church by saying, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to inspect Philemon's obedience to this. And, and this is an important principle. Uh, When when I was in in college taking business classes, there was a a saying in our our operations management course of how do you you actually manage a a business? And there was a saying that stuck with me. It says that that you manage what is measured. Uh, And what that saying communicates is that what you pay attention to, what you go in and actually measure and track over time, your employees will focus upon that. Because when your employees know that you're going to come in and you're measuring their performance in a particular area, they're going to pay attention to that area. But if you say, hey, this is what matters most, but then you never pay attention to it, what are they going to do? They're going to disregard it because you've disregarded it. Uh, another way of phrasing this same idea is that you should inspect what you expect. Okay? For instance, when uh, when the United Nations passed sanctions against Iran's nuclear program, you know they have all of these these rules and restrictions on what they're supposed to do, uh, and this agency, uh, the IAEA the International Atomic Energy Agency, they didn't just trust Iran's word that they were doing uh, like, yeah, we're following the sanctions, and then we'll just leave it at that. No what does the IAEA go and do? They go into the country and they evaluate whether or not uh, Iran is abiding by those sanctions. They go in and they 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 look at their research and development of how they're using those nuclear materials. They they go in and they they put seals on the nuclear materials. They go in and I didn't realize this. They install surveillance cameras in those facilities so that they can observe what's happening uh, all the time. See, we understand that that if we we want to hold somebody accountable, we need to go and observe. We need to go and find out if they are actually doing what they have been called to do. And it, and this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is coming ready to inspect what he has expected of Philemon. He's called Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to receive him back not only as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And then he says, hey, I'm going to be there soon to check on you. And I'm just going to leave it as kind of an ambiguous, I could be there at any time, so be ready. Keep that room ready for me. And this shows us what we are called to do after we make an appeal to another Christian. We lovingly appeal to them. We ask them to submit to the Word of God. We allow them to make a decision. And at the same time, we should inform them that we're going to come back and ask them in the future, Hey, what did you decide to do? Tell me what you decided. What did you do? Are you going to pursue Christ or are you going to go your own way? And it's okay to make that clear in your appeal. right? Paul makes that clear. Hey, I want you to do the right thing here, Philemon. I want your goodness to be by your own uh, decision. That We need to make it clear and then hold others accountable. Uh, Accountability is so important as Christians. We talked about this earlier in our study that we are called in Hebrews to, uh, to watch over each other. Uh, to be sure that, that nobody falls into an evil and unbelieving heart. We are to encourage one another as long as it's still called today. We are to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to, to warn when, when others are wandering into sin or we see someone's heart uh, falling in love with the world and away from Christ. We are called to be accountable to one another, and we all need to be held accountable to our actions. Because Do we still sin? Absolutely. And we need other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside and say, Hey, I think you need to go back and, and resolve that with your wife. Or I think you need to go back and, uh, and, and resolve this conflict with your children or with that person at work. You, you need to go and, and pursue peace and reconciliation. And the, these first two principles are so important. To communicate trust and then to provide accountability after uh, that appeal. So important. And there are also two other principles that we can easily kind of pass over because it's in that that section in your Bible that just says final greetings. And you're like, okay, it's final greetings. I'm done with here. Uh, but there's still two more very important principles that we see here. Principle number three is that we need to remind them of their fellowship. See, in verses 23 and 24, Paul Paul brings up these these five men. He says, Epaphras, my, fe- my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. He, he reintroduces these men here. And I say reintroduces because as we saw at the end of Colossians, Paul spends a, a good portion of the end of that letter introducing us to all of these these people. And he's already greeted all of them. So why, if he's writing two letters to the same place, does he mention it again? Why does he say that again? I think I think he's doing it here to bring other witnesses into the situation. But by mentioning these men and saying, hey, these are my fellow workers, Philemon, the you leader of the church and who's also my fellow worker, there's all of these other men who are, who are aware of this situation, other Christians, other godly men who are watching and waiting to see how you are going to respond. So he adds, hey, the, the church knows what you're going to decide. Paul says, hey, I'm going to be there. And I'm going to check up on you. And then he says, all of these other men who are with me in Rome are s- observing what you are going to do here. And while we're not sure how familiar Philemon would have been with all five of these men, we know for sure he was very familiar with Epaphras because Epaphras was the one who started the church with Philemon. They, they were the, the the church planting team, so to speak. All too often our our modern culture preaches this, this gospel of independence, that you will be most happy when you are independent, when no one else is telling you what to do or how to live, how to act. And as this false message of independence has taken root in our culture, it's amazing to also see a dramatic rise uh, in depression. Depression. And feelings of isolation and disconnectedness, as, as we've pronounced this gospel, this false message of, you will be happy when you're independent, we realize, hey, when we're independent, there's no one else with me. <laughs> there's no one else there alongside me, and I, I've cut off everybody who might challenge me, who might hold me accountable, who might keep me from falling into depression. And this this letter highlights the interconnectedness of Christians. The truth is that Christians are connected with every other Christian because we are all united to who? Jesus Christ. It's like we're we're the uh, a big wheel. In the middle of that wheel is Jesus Christ, and all of the individual spokes are Christians, and we are all connected to one another because we're all connected to that center hub of Jesus, which then completely changes how we view sin and conflict we begin to see the broader picture of how our conflict with other Christians will impact the entire church, the church with a capital C, not just the local church. Yes, it will impact the local church. If Philemon and Onesimus don't reconcile, it's going to impact the church at Colossae. But what Paul is also saying is that if, if Philemon and Onesimus don't reconcile, it's also going to have implications for Paul and his ministry companions in Rome. What do I mean by that? Well, how can can the message of the gospel, and again, the, the gospel claims to have the power to reconcile sinful man with a holy God. That is a powerful message of reconciliation. And if the gospel claims to have that power and ability, it is stained and tainted. If that same message can't bring two believers together within the same church and bring peace between them, How how can the gospel bring peace between God and man if it can't bring peace between two men? How is that possible? And so you see, if this conflict is not resolved, there's implications for the entire church, for all of Christianity. Again, we've talked about what's the number one uh, objection to, to people attending church? Hypocrisy among Christians. So why would I go there? I see all the, the hypocrisy of the, the lives of the people that go to that church. Why would I want to go and participate in that? And that's why the gospel being on display in reconciliation, and peace, in resolving conflict is so key and is so important. Our gospel obedience always has implications, not only for us, but for the entire church. So we need to be reminded of the wider fellowship that we share with every Christian near and far. And that is what Paul does here. He says, hey, look at these men. They send their greetings. They're aware of what's happening, and they're watching, waiting to see how you are going to respond. And then that brings us to the fourth and, and final principle that we, we should apply after making an appeal. And, and this principle might be the most important. Not that we, we take the other three and, and just throw them out the window. But this final principle empowers and enables the first three. And this final principle, principle number four, is that we should pray for grace to be with them. We see it in verse 25. Paul simply says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And again, this is something that we, we typically just flow right past as we read. Like, hey, Paul ends all of his letters this way. It's, just, you know, it's just, his, just signing off, but we don't really pause to think about what it means. Paul is saying, you need grace in this situation. And I'm praying that grace would be with you to that end, that this is resolved. And it's amazing because Paul ends the letter with grace, but he also began the letter with grace. If you look at verse three, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with grace and ends with grace, takes his whole conflict resolution. And what does he wrap it in? The grace of God say, this is what you need most. This is a simple prayer, but it is a powerful prayer. He prays for grace, the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays not only for Philemon, but he prays for the entire church, and this is where, uh, the, the English is a little bit less clear because that you in verse 25 is plural. If we were in the South, you could, you know, you could read it as y'all's spirit. Uh, y'all's is the possessive of y'all. So, uh, that, that's what he's saying. The grace of the Lord be with you all. Be with your spirits. Every single person in that church needs the grace of Christ in this situation to be able to encourage peace and reconciliation. And we have to, to echo this prayer early and often. Whenever conflict arises between Christians, whenever conflict arises at all, and even before it arises, Lord, give me grace. Uh, prepare me for today that if conflict would arise, that I would be able to resolve it to your glory. That, that's what we need to begin to pray and, and seek uh, in our own hearts and in our own lives and to pray for others who are in conflict those of you who have been in conflict again, it's like a black hole. It sucks you in. You can't think of anything else, uh, and it's it's a sanctifying tool of the Lord. But we need to be praying for people who are in conflict, and we need to be praying for our own hearts. We must commit to pray for others, and that especially that God's grace would be applied to every single person involved in a conflict. That his peace would rule in their hearts. That his word uh, would guide them. That the gospel would be put on display as reconciliation and peace are not only pursued, but then achieved. And we can provide accountability for others, but without prayer? We, what we sink into is just, saying, hey, I'm going I'm to hold you to this. But if we're not praying for that person, we, we in essence just become psychologists. And we just say, we do something, a school of psychology known as behaviorism. That we just train a right response and then they'll do the right thing. And that's what, that's what accountability can become if it's not bathed and soaked in prayer. And if we're not appealing to somebody and giving them, uh, trust and saying, hey, you exercise your freedom in Christ and I'm going to follow up with you on what you do. That is what we need to do. We don't want to, to fall into behaviorism. We want to, we want to, to turn to the Lord in prayer because prayer is what will sanctify our accountability to one another. And it will sanctify our appeals. So we must commit to pray for God's grace. What an amazing little letter, right? You know, it's a single page on our Bibles, but there's a lot here. And it still leaves us with a cliffhanger at the end. What happened? What does is, what is Philemon do? Does he do that even more than what the Apostle Paul asked him to do? Well, we're not 100% sure. But half a century after this letter was written, the church father, Ignatius, wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus and the little town of Colossae are about 110 miles apart. And uh, he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And in this letter, he identifies a man named Onesimus as the bishop or the pastor of that church. In this letter, uh, Ignatius writes, Since therefore I have received in God's name your whole congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, who is also your earthly bishop. I pray that you will love him in accordance with the standard set by Jesus Christ and that all of you will be like him. For blessed is the one who has graciously allowed you, worthy as you are, to have such a bishop. Is that the same Onesimus? We're not sure. It may be unlikely because it would have meant that Onesimus was really old uh, at that time. But I hope that it is. That would be a fitting end to this story, would it not? That Onesimus went on to to serve the Lord and, and to pastor the church at Ephesus. What an appeal and what an amazing promise of accountability to follow. Paul made his appeal to Philemon, and by doing so he pointed Philemon to a higher authority. He said, you're going to need to answer to the Lord. He didn't make it about obeying Paul, he made it about obeying God and doing the right thing before a holy God. And and as we've talked about accountability this morning, It, it is important that we hold one another accountable, that we encourage one another, that we warn one another but even more important is that we understand that every single person who has ever walked on earth is accountable to God as their creator and every believer is doubly accountable to him as our creator and our savior 2 Corinthians 5:10 Paul writes of, of the, the future time but every believer is going to stand before Christ and be judged for rewards we will be rewarded by Christ in 2 Corinthians five ten, 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And again, in Hebrews four twelve and 13, the author writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. John MacArthur makes makes a good point as he expresses the limitations of human accountability. He says this in an interview. He says while it is certainly helpful to seek accountability from other godly individuals, fellow elders, family members, etc., it is even more helpful to remind yourself about the reality of divine accountability and future judgment. You can be surrounded by a lot of people to whom you are accountable, but if you lose the battle of accountability to God in your heart, you will never win it on the outside. The real battle is fought in the conscience and in the heart. American statesman Daniel Webster was once asked, what, what was the greatest thought that has ever entered your mind? What's the greatest thought that's ever entered your mind? Webster thought about it, and then he replied, the thought of my personal accountability to God, that we will all one day stand before God and have to, to explain our actions, to give an account to a holy God for what we have done. That is our ultimate accountability. And when we make a, an appeal to somebody else, a good appeal is going to do exactly that. And we're going to get out of the way. We're going to point this person to their accountability to the Lord. And then we're going to allow them to make their decision. Free from coercion and compulsion. But they get to consent to the decision that they make. So may we grow in our understanding of how to make an appeal, how to hold people accountable. May we grow in our willingness to do that with grace and with love. And most importantly, may we begin to see God as our highest authority, as our greatest good, as the one that we must all stand before. That verse in Hebrews is scary, right? That we are all naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We need to think about that and point others to that in love, grace, and compassion. Let's pray to that end. Holy God, Lord, we come to give you thanks for giving us life and breath and everything. Lord, every person in this room owes to you worship, honor, thanksgiving, allegiance because you have... Given us life. Additionally, you have saved us. You have sent your Son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, we thank you for forgiving us through our faith in Him. And we ask that you would help us to forgive others, that you would help us to extend grace in the same way that you have extended grace to us. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to season our words with salt. Teach us to be bold and compassionate and appealing to others, to turn from sin and to turn to your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us that boldness. Give us that compassion. And then, Lord, give us understanding to know how we should appeal to them and then provide accountability for them, to encourage them to faithfulness. And, Lord, may we commit to pray for others on a regular basis, that grace would be the defining characteristic of their life. And Lord, may you supply your grace in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Lord, may your grace be with us all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.